from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that plums the depths of history to deliver old news in a new way. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're talking about French oceaneering legend and scuba pioneer Jacques Cousteau. The day was February 3rd, 1953. French oceanographer Jacques Cousteau published his best-selling memoir, The Silent World. The book was co-authored by French writer and diving enthusiast Frédéric Dumas and recounted Cousteau's early years of underwater exploration. It was immensely successful, going on to sell more than 5 million copies in 22 different languages. Three years later, a companion documentary was released to build on the book's success. It, too, was titled The Silent World, and it, too, was highly acclaimed. The film version was directed by Louis Malle and offered many viewers their first glimpse of the hidden world of tropical fish, whales, and walruses. Malle's landmark film won both the Palme d'Or at the Cannes International Film Festival and the Academy Award for Best Documentary. Jacques-Yves Cousteau was born in southwestern France, not far from Bordeaux, on June 11, 1910. He was the second of two sons born to their father, an international lawyer, and their mother, the daughter of a successful wine merchant and landowner. The Cousteau family was well off financially, but health-wise, Jacques was far from it. He suffered from anemia and chronic stomach problems throughout his youth. But his illness didn't slow him down too much. Jacques learned how to swim when he was just four years old, and he later credited his early swimming experience as the origin for his life's great passion. In 1920, the Cousteau family moved to New York for the sake of Mr. Cousteau's law practice. 
They lived there for about two years, and it was during that time that Jacques learned to speak English. He also got plenty of practice swimming and snorkeling at a summer camp he attended in Vermont. It was there that Jacques also got his first taste of diving. The camp had launched an effort to clean up the nearby lake, and Jacques volunteered to dive to the bottom to help clear away debris. Once again, this early experience proved formative. Jacques quickly fell in love with being underwater, despite the fact that he didn't own any goggles at the time. On the plus side, there probably wasn't much worth seeing at the bottom of a dirty lake. When the Cousteau family returned to France in 1922, they settled in the Mediterranean city of Marseille, close to the Italian border. That allowed Jacques to continue snorkeling right there along the city's coast. That was also around the time Jacques bought a used movie camera, which he then proceeded to take apart and reassemble so he could learn how it worked. The benefit of hindsight makes it seem like Jacques Cousteau's trajectory in life took shape early on. By age 12, he was already a curious boy who loved exploring underwater and who had a strong interest in both mechanics and filmmaking. At the time, though, Jacques didn't have his sights set on a career at sea at all, and certainly not as a researcher. He got lousy grades in high school and didn't show much interest in academics. He also acted out a lot as a teenager, including one time when he went on a spree smashing windows. Shortly after, his parents decided to send him to a super strict boarding school in northeast France. The discipline seemed to do the trick for Jacques, and he did well both in and out of school from then on. He later attended college in Paris, and in 1930, he was accepted to the French Naval Academy, where he trained for a couple years before finally being commissioned as a second lieutenant. From there, things went smoothly for Jacques for the next several years. He got to sail the world as a gunnery officer, traveling to exotic ports in the Indian and South Pacific Oceans and filming whatever caught his eye along the way. Then, in 1935, with a bit of experience under his belt, Jacques Cousteau finally decided on what he wanted to do for a career. He would become a naval aircraft pilot. That's right, after all that tooling around at sea, Jacques wanted to fly, not sail. That's not how things worked out, though, due to an unforeseen tragedy. In 1936, just before his training was complete, Jacques borrowed his dad's sports car to attend a friend's wedding. On the way back that evening, he was going a bit too fast around a bend in the road when all of a sudden his headlights shorted out. Cousteau survived the crash, of course, but not without breaking a dozen bones and fracturing both his arms. Worse still, his right arm became so badly infected that surgeons thought the best option was to amputate it entirely. In the end, Cousteau insisted that his arm be left intact, no matter how deadly the infection might get. Jacques Cousteau recovered eventually, but he never went back to piloting. The damage to his arms was too severe for him to ever fly a plane in combat. The silver lining was that the accident provided him the opportunity to reacquaint himself with the hobbies of his youth. He spent the next several months swimming daily in the Mediterranean Sea as a way to strengthen his arms. To make the sessions more enjoyable for himself, he borrowed an early pair of swimming goggles from a friend. It was his first time using them and it literally opened his eyes to the underwater mysteries all around him. From then on, Jacques spent as much time as he could taking in the strange and colorful plants and animals that he found on the seafloor. When it was time to return his friend's goggles, Jacques decided to craft his own pair from something he just happened to have lying around. 
a pair of aircraft pilot goggles. Jacques's new outlook extended to his love life as well. In 1937, just a year after the crash, he married a woman he had met at a cocktail party earlier that year. Her name was Simone Melchior, and she and Jacques stayed together for 53 years until her death in 1990. The couple also had two sons together, Jean-Michel, born in 1938, and Philippe, born in 1940, both of whom joined their parents on many expeditions when they were young. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, though, with that, because a lot happened between the Cousteau's wedding and the time the family first set sail, namely World War II. Jacques was still serving as a gunnery officer in the French Navy when the fighting began in 1939. Emotionally, it was a difficult time for him. His country was suddenly at war with the Italians right next door. He had friends over there, and now he was aboard the ships that were attacking their naval bases. Understandably, he felt conflicted about waging war in the Mediterranean against the people he'd grown up with. Then, a year later, France surrendered to Nazi Germany, and the Italian occupation began. Thankfully, once Paris fell, Jacques was able to flee with his family to a small town near the Swiss border. They lived there peacefully for the next few years. In fact, that period of relative safety was when Jacques began to focus on underwater exploration and research. To be clear, though, it's not like he was just on holiday. Following France's surrender, Jacques joined the French resistance movement and began working against Italy's intelligence services, essentially spying on Italian troops and keeping track of their movements. Amidst that long-running series of military operations, Jacques continued his ocean research and made several technical breakthroughs. He was living in the heart of occupied France during the darkest days of the war, but amazingly, those were some of the most productive years of his life. 1943, in particular, was a pivotal year for Jacques Cousteau. First, in the town where he had fled to, he met a fellow explorer named Marcel Ichac. That year, they made the first French underwater film together, called 18 Meters Deep. They shot it themselves in the waters around a group of islands in the French Mediterranean, and it marked the first step in what would become a very long career of underwater filmmaking. However, that wasn't the only life-changing thing Jacques did in 1943. That was also the year that he co-invented the Aqualung with a French engineer named Émile Gagnon. The Aqualung wasn't the first breathing apparatus ever made, or even the first scuba gear. Hard-hat diving suits had been around for almost a hundred years by the time Jacques started diving. His own take on the concept was the result of his growing frustration with the limitations of then-current diving equipment. Jacques couldn't travel as deep as he wanted, and he couldn't stay under for anywhere near as long as he would have liked. In those days, the best option on the market was the self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, or scuba, that had been invented about 20 years earlier by another French engineer. That meant divers had the option of wearing air tanks on their backs instead of wearing heavy helmets with air tubes that kept them tethered to the surface. The problem was that the first scuba gear lacked any kind of regulator, so there was no way to control the airflow to the diver. That meant the air supply was used up quickly because it was being released in a constant stream, which limited dive times to just a few minutes. Jacques wanted to dive as deep as he possibly could, but he couldn't get very far with only 10 or 20 minutes worth of air. That limitation led him to reach out to Emile Gagnon, 
A year earlier, the engineer had invented a demand regulator to control the gas flow in engines, and Jacques thought the valve might have applications for diving as well. He figured if you could modify the valve just a little, it could supply air only when a diver breathed in, thus conserving the air supply and allowing the diver to stay underwater longer. Jacques took his idea to Gagnon, and in 1943 they co-invented and patented the on-demand diving regulator, or as they called it, the aqualung. In The Silent World, the book, not the film, Jacques described his first dive with the equipment, which took place in the Mediterranean waters of the French Riviera in June of 1943. At night, he wrote, I had often had visions of flying by extending my arms as wings. Now I flew without wings. I thought of the helmet diver arriving where I was in his ponderous boots and struggling to walk a few yards, obsessed with his umbilical and his head imprisoned in copper. On skin dives, I had seen him leaning dangerously forward to make a step, clamped in heavier pressure at the ankles than the head, a cripple in an alien land. From this day forward, though, we would swim across miles of country no man had known, free and level, with our flesh feeling what the fish scales know. Jacques Cousteau put that newfound freedom to use once the war ended. In 1948, he joined with fellow divers and a group of scientists to explore a Roman shipwreck off the coast of Tunisia. It was the first underwater archaeology operation to use scuba equipment, effectively the birth of a whole new field. Then, in the early 1950s, Jacques and his team decided to take the next step and devote their lives full-time to underwater exploration. The only problem was they would need lots of money to fund those expeditions and they didn't have any. Jacques began reaching out to all kinds of French science institutions, as well as to potential private donors. Eventually, he struck gold with a wealthy British philanthropist and member of parliament named Thomas Lowell Guinness. Jacques told him all about his plans to make undersea documentaries and introduce the world to the wonders of the deep, and Guinness loved the idea. He agreed to help by buying a decommissioned minesweeper ship from the war one that had already been converted for use as a car ferry. He then leased the ship to Jacques for the symbolic price of one franc per year. And that's how Jacques Cousteau came to own the world-famous Calypso. Jacques was able to gradually restructure the ship and transform it into a state-of-the-art research vessel, complete with a support base for diving, a helipad, and special storage for equipment, such as the mini-submarines he had designed himself. The team's biggest break, though, and the thing that really allowed Jacques to continue financing their research, was his media exposure. Throughout the 1950s, he and his fellow divers began publicizing their efforts in stories for Time Magazine and National Geographic. Jacques also co-authored a memoir during this time about his scuba adventures, called The Silent World. It was a triumph, both financially and scientifically as it included the first-ever suggestion that whales are able to communicate with each other using echolocation. The team knew exactly how to build on the book's success, too. Just three years later, Jacques Cousteau made his first documentary film about the ocean, which was also called The Silent World, for maximum synergy. The film was another major turning point for the team, and really for diving in general. At the time, very few people had ever seen undersea footage before, so the movie was a revelation for folks who had no idea what underwater plant and marine life even looked like. 
After the film was released, scuba sales soared, with many people scrambling to try diving for themselves. Once again, Jacques Cousteau knew exactly how to capitalize on the public interest and use it to fuel further expeditions. By the late 1960s, he was such a well-known figure that the BBC and ABC in the US gave him his own primetime TV show. It was called The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, and it followed the real-life exploits of he and his crew for a total of nine seasons, which is an impressive run for a French nature series. It was that series that really made Jacques Cousteau a household name throughout the 1970s and 80s. In the same way that The Silent World had introduced readers and moviegoers to the underwater realm, the TV show gave viewers their first glimpse of humans interacting with marine life in ways they'd never seen before, such as swimming with dolphins or being pulled along by giant sea turtles. Jacques continued his ocean research for the rest of his life, eventually adding conservation work to his already impressive resume. He died on June 25, 1997, at the age of 87. His inventions revolutionized undersea exploration, and the work he did in film and TV sparked a public interest in ocean research that's been difficult to match in the decades since. Cousteau's motto aboard the Calypso was Il faut aller voir. We must go and see. His work proved that necessity, because exploring the oceans whether firsthand or through others' accounts, is the best way for people to fall in love with them and the marvels they contain. From there, the hope is that if we love the ocean, then we'll do our best to take care of it. It may sound a little corny, but here's hoping. I'm Gabe Musier, and hopefully, you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to send them my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again soon for another day in history class. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.